Hey guys and girls, welcome to another episode of Molecule to Market, where you go inside of the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. Today, my guest was Mr. Hans Johansson, who is Global Applications Director at Purolite. For background, Hans has been at Purolite for a few years, and he spent more than 30 years in the biotech industry. Most of that time was in R&D at Pharmacia Amersham GE Healthcare, with a special focus on the design and application of industrial chromatography resins intended for antibody purification. He frequently publishes in scientific journals and is the holder of more than 10 patents around resin design and large-scale protein purification. And he's currently working with development and applications of novel agarose-based chromatography resins. He is a really interesting guy, unbelievably understated, as you'll find out when you hear the interview in just a few moments. It was interesting just getting his take on being an ideas man, actually in developing ideas and creating products that ultimately have gone on to produce new applications for customers. And he talks uh, really interestingly about how he's had to uh, you know, navigate commercial teams and founders and owners to take those ideas to commercial uh, success. He's also talked about you know, driving the Purolite life science business unit from the ground up, from lab bench to commercial scale franchise, which was uh, you know, really quite a fascinating story. As per many of our guests, he talks about his habits in terms of, you know, um, his like kind of lifelong habits that have really helped him build an unbelievably successful career. For any of you that are interested in Sweden's kind of life science industry, he talks about Uppsala and what a vibrant region that is. And the final thing to look out for is Hans talks about development of new technologies that increase yield while reducing environmental footprint, which I think is potentially a sign of things to come. As always, thanks so much for listening to Molecule to Market. Uh, if you like what you hear today or in any of the episodes, uh, please uh, leave us a review on the app store that you use. And in the meantime, enjoy today's episode. We are proudly supported by Zymewire, which is a leader in actionable sales intelligence for life science business development professionals. In fact, thousands of life science BD professionals start their day with sales signals from Zymewire. Because you listen to Molecule to Market, you can have a free go at the platform. Just go to tryzymewire.com. That's tryzymewire.com. Hey, Hans, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rama. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's absolute, absolute pleasure. And Hans, just to start off with, it would be great if you could give our listener a little bit of a background of, of who you are and you know, how you got into the sector and, and ultimately ended up in your role at Purelight today. Okay, well, that is a long journey. I, if I go all the way back. I was born in, in 1959 and uh, having this coming up, I was kind of thinking about, you know, my career over the years and 59, that was the same year as a company called Pharmacia launched a product called Cephadex. And it was really in the, let's say the very early days of life science. Science barely knew where proteins was and, and there was very little tools in R&D. 
So a couple of years later, in the <laughs> early 80s, I joined this company called Pharmacia. Then it was a pharmaceutical company. And, uh, and I joined the, what was called then the refined chemicals division. So, so really the pioneers in, in chromatography. Uh, and there I started as an application scientist. And um, that's the area where I have been all the way up till now. And you, looking back at your kind of uh, career history, you spent a long time at GE um, from, uh, I, I couldn't quite count the years up because, <laughs> but there was quite a few years that you spent, uh, spent at GE. How was, how was that experience in terms of forming who you are as a, as a professional today? Wow, that's a, <clears throat> that's a complex question. <laughs> I didn't say it was going to be easy, Hans. <laughs> no. Well, I think if you look back, what ended up being now Cytiva, it's been quite a journey both for me and the company. So it started, like I mentioned, as a, as a pharmaceutical company and the kind of life science biotech area was just a division in the larger um, pharma company. And then as in all businesses, there's been a lot of merges and divesting. So we've been owned by over the years by different companies, all the way from Pfizer to Amersham. And, and so with that, the kind of values of the company also changes. But for me, as a scientist, I'd say it's been a very interesting journey. You know, I joined in the early 80s. And that was really when the kind of modern life science started to take form. So when I went to university, you made proteins. Basically, I, I still remember my, my first kind of large-scale separation. We had to clean about 100 kilos of bull testicles <laughs> and then grind them you know, into a kind of a pink sauce. <laughs> and then you did precipitations in big buckets. So it's very, really a hand, let's say, based on, on experience. And But in parallel, the, the modern way kind of evolved. It started with the recombinant technology. So rather, so before that, all the, Biological pharmaceuticals were really based on extractions from tissue so, and replacement therapies. So things from blood plasma, albumin, growth factors, and uh, coagulation factors to, to treat different deficiency diseases. Uh, but with the kind of emerge of recombinant technology, it became possible to basically do any type of protein with a simple uh, reactor and that really transformed the whole industry and from being more of academic interest it started to gain the interest of of big pharma eventually and a lot of companies were founded in those days like Amien and Genentech. Curious to hear about you know how you were shaped by by GE and uh, it was interesting I suppose you've had to go through different changes in your I suppose journey on the way, but you know, even though the companies have changed, your kind of scientific roots 
have remained uh, solid and you've obviously evolved as, as that time has, has gone on. And, and I, I understand you live in uh, Uppsala in, in Sweden, which uh, is, you know, for our, for our listener, you know, can you paint a picture of Uppsala as a, in, in terms of the life science space and uh, having visited there a few years ago, uh, it's one of those places that I believe has got a really vibrant kind of uh, life science ecosystem. And so, you know, for, for those of our listeners that haven't heard of it or may have heard a little bit about it, but don't know much about it, do you mind painting a picture of, of what that looks like in kind of as it stands today in 2022? Well, it's an interesting city. I, I'm born here, as I mentioned, and it's always been formed by the university. So it's a university town. One of the, I would think, is the second largest university in, in Sweden. And it had a long history in life science. So there are several Nobel laureates like Tiselius and Svedberg who did some pioneering work in protein separations or technologies related to protein separation. So I'd say the, the, it's really the birthplace of modern chromatography. Uh, and it all comes, I think like most great ideas, they actually come from academia. And then you need to have this cluster where you have a commercial company that actually can pick the ideas and develop them and commercialize them. So it's always been a very nice synergy between the university and the business. In And we were fortunate enough to have this relatively, by Swedish measure, large pharma company that had the resources to actually pick this up. And that, that, what, you, what you mentioned there, Hans, in terms of the that connection between academia and an industry ha- obviously the, we've got some pretty high profile recent examples with the oxford university and astrazeneca vaccine do you feel like there's still a strong connection between academia and industry or do you think in your you know 30 30 plus years in 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 the industry have you seen that disappear a little bit or actually get stronger and stronger? Just curious to hear your views, given that that kind of was formative in in your experience. That's a very good question. And I'd say in in Sweden, it's hard to say. I think there is still a pretty good, and especially in Uppsala, uh, there is a lot of, it's, it's like a, a little bit of a, sometimes you can call it a life science valley between the Stockholm Uppsala area. So there are, I think, a very good environment for startups and to pick ideas from academia. So we have a, a nice system where it's really possible to, you know, based on re- your research, to start small startup company to explore the potential of, of different ideas from academia. So, so I'd say it's fairly positive environment. What we might have what also helps, of course, is to have these large companies. Because, so Pharmacia, the pharma part was actually acquired by Pfizer and they closed most of it in the research side of it. So there was so much experience, several thousand of people who'd been working in R&D and they kind of 
made it possible for all these startups. There is a lot of knowledge in the area, and um, I think that's been very helpful to the success of the, if you call it, the life science hub. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, we had a guest on a few months ago um, who talked about in, uh, Stevenage in the UK and how that saw that it kind of came off the back of a a site, a big pharma site closing down and actually exploded into an incubator kind of vibrant place. It sounds quite similar in Uppsala as well, which I'm sure there are similar stories all over the world of kind of not draining that knowledge, but actually using that knowledge to pivot into something else, which is, which is certainly very encouraging. And, and I'd like to ask you about Pure Light and, you know, for, for our listeners that have never come across the business, don't know what you do and, you know, who you serve. Can you give the listener a bit of an overview of, of the business in terms of um, its main kind of reason for being, if you like? <laughs> My reason for being, that was... A- <laughs> not yours. <laughs> not yours, the companies rather than oh. rather than you personally. <laughs> okay. We're not going to yeah. go that deep just yet. Um, but yeah, just, you know, if you could paint a picture of of pure light in terms of it's you know what what it does as a business that would be that would be great okay i, I might have to go go back to my sativa days a bit because i think my role quite often has been a bit of a bridge builder so so like i mentioned before uh, I, i'm not really a let's say a super specialist in any specific area but i think i have a pretty good holistic perspective of the whole life science area, which have enabled me to kind of pick up good ideas from academia and talk my management into, you know, developing those ideas to, to make great products. Um, so, so with Pure Light, I joined Pure Light about eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. And, and it's a quite a different company. So, uh, it, it it was privately owned. We just got acquired maybe a couple of months ago, just before Christmas, by a, a larger US company, Ecolab. Uh, but when I started, it was still a private company owned by two brothers. And, and that has facilitates, of course, this very short decision <laughs> ways. And, and um, so I joined basically to support the, the development of an resin-based platform for life science uh, applications. So when I joined, PureLight had what we call the core business. So it's based on synthetic beads and they serve more heavy industry areas, everything from mining to water purification to sugar refineries. So really huge volumes. while life science is quite different, it's a much more regulated industry. And, and the owners saw that they could apply the technology for making beads to move into the life science area. And that's why I was hired and I've been responsible and still are f- for applications and to some extent to decision on what products we should make and what we should develop. I'm going to come on to Ecolab and the kind of acquisition in a moment, but how how is, you know, since 2014 to where we are today, how has the life science division grown? If you can paint a picture of, you know, when you joined, there was five people and now there are, you know, 
100 people or whatever that looks like it'd be good just to hear because my understanding is you've become the world leader in this space in life sciences when it comes to you know resin technologies and um, but I'm, I'm guessing you played a pretty crucial role in that so it's it'd be great if you can paint a picture of what that growth ha- has looked like well when they started it was actually only two people when i joined <laughs> the one also had a history i know him from my GE days. Um, so he was a specialist in really making Agaros beads. Uh, and one of the, let's say, senior scientists to develop the Sativa range of Agaros beads. And I guess he needed some Swedish company. <laughs> so they hired me. <laughs> uh, and we started really with an empty lab bench uh, seven years ago, a group of four or five people. And um, I'd say we, we really managed to, with very good support, of course, from the owners to, to transform the whole, or actually to, to, to build an agarost-based, or let's say life science-based franchise uh, over those seven, eight years, which includes, of course, building, going all the way from, from benchtop experiments to full-scale manufacturing to become one of the largest suppliers of these types of beads today so it's been a very interesting journey and, ha- and how many people work in the life science division alone today that is a very good question to be honest i don't have a clue it probably <laughs> increases by 10 every week so but, but i would assume uh, something in the area between 100 and 200 people wow amazing did it did it feel like your own business to an extent as you, you know it was interesting some of the language almost building a franchise and building this from the lab bench scale to your commercial, did it, did it feel like you would part of that driving force in a, almost like in an entrepreneurial way or with, you know, was the business there to support kind of your ideas in, in kind of making them happen? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it was a good mix. So, so I think the owners are very, um, well, they're very smart people. <laughs> they, so they had the technology, you know, they, to build. It's quite a complex thing to build a plant. Uh, it takes time. And, but they had basically no experience from, from the, the kind of protein biopharmaceutical industry. So we brought in the, the experience of how to make this product and also how they are used. Because um, the... the I think the customer interaction is very important. It's, uh, it's that's where you learn. That's where I, I think I always see me as a bit of a link between the, the end user. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. We are proudly supported by ZymeWire, which is a leader in actionable sales intelligence for life science business development professionals. In fact, thousands of life science BD professionals start their day with sales signals from ZymeWire. Because you listen to Molecule to Market, you can have a free go at the platform. Just go to tryzymewire.com. That's tryzymewire.com. You've said a couple of times in terms of I suppose ideas and then creating products from from the ideas and apologies if I've misheard that explanation, but almost this idea that you 
have had to almost not persuade people to that there is a market that exists there is a application for you know taking one thing and repurposing it to, to something else i'm sure a lot of our listeners would probably resonate with that where they come from a scientific background and they want to articulate their idea in a in a way that is commercially appealing for businesses and if i've understood correctly hans you've you've done that <laughs> throughout your career so I think that's a really unique skill personally, but it would be great to share any words of wisdom, any advice you've got for people in similar situations where they've got, you know, a great idea that's you know, science is solid, and, but how to you know, go to a board or a senior management team or a founder or whatever it is and say, guys, we need to do this and this is why. What what advice have you got for people like that and what's worked and, and maybe not worked <laughs> in, in your in your experience? Uh, that's an interesting question. Of course, with so many years in the industry, there are many different aspects. I think the number one advice is probably to 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 pick your manager. <laughs> and, and then it's about it's very different from different companies. So with a company like GE, you need a lot of kind of corporate savvy to to in, there is like an informal decision structure um, so you have to pitch your ideas pretty much like a, an um, entrepreneur to raise capital here you need to raise capital within a large company and i think the the ways of doing that is quite similar you have to have a clear idea of what is the end goal um and I think one good example is Protein A. I don't know how much you knew about life science, but Protein A is an affinity resin that is used for purification of monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies is probably in the area of, well, more than half of the biologics market today. So it's enormous, big amounts uh, produced monoclonal antibodies. And when I worked with protein A, that was long before antibodies became, you know, popular therapeutics. So, so we thought protein A is a brilliant way, but there was a lot of discussions internally in the company where management and regulatory experts say, no, you can never use protein A for purification of biopharmaceutical. You can't sterilize it. It's this and that. Um, but it has some really unique properties and somehow not only me, but other people managed to kind of talk the management into giving us the resources to develop these types of resins and also to improve them over the years. And now that's definitely one of the largest products from, from Cytiva. It's incredible. It's great. And what, talk us through the impact of, of COVID and, you know, from a, security of supply chain perspective because i appreciate you guys are one of the world leaders in in resin and i'm guessing shipping this around the world during covid <laughs> probably brought, brought some interesting challenges it would be great to share your views on you know security of supply chain any challenges you guys have had and actually just any thoughts on on that subject would be would be great 
Yeah, it kind of changed the character of the business a bit. Of course, COVID had, I mean, everybody read the papers and they heard about the lack of ships to making everything from cars to computers. Uh, it's been a little bit of the same in, in the life science area. So, so the, let's say, traditionally big vendors got kind of overwhelmed by orders. So, so for some rest since there are now, if you go to, I shouldn't mention any company, but to some companies, they can tell you, sure, you can have that. It will take you 18 months. And there you're sitting with the process. And, and so it's problematic. So, so we saw this coming up maybe a, a year or two years ago, where industry really started to look for, for alternative or second suppliers. So that's been, let's say, like in all industry, a really focus on the supply chain. And I think that in the end, we'd also transform the industry. It's a bit difficult in the pharmaceutical industry because it's so regulated. So a process, to some extent, is the product. So it's not so easy to change. But uh, it's a lot of work ongoing in different committees to, to, to kind of try to overcome that and make it easier. Mm-hmm. Because I'm just, um, you know, back to what you said before in terms of you know, the kind of the monoclonal antibody market in particular in biologic drugs and the work you guys do is is fundamental to the development and processing of those types of products. So it's just, it's, I imagine <laughs> supply chain issues for you guys would have a significant knock-on effect for those types of products. Um, it was that, is that a fair perception that, you know, if you guys can't, supply then that that has a much bigger impact elsewhere in the supply chain oh absolutely um, i think that's true and we are i mean and now with with the muscles of Equilab, we, we are expanding our manufacturing so so we built the first we have several plants globally over the world but only one that makes agarose resins or for life science applications today but we are in the process of building a second one in the u.s so we will have kind of complete dual sourcing of our most important resins. You beautifully segued me into my next question, which is around Ecolab. And obviously it's been uh, you know a few months in. It was a multi-billion transaction that I read on the on the website and um you know very well respected business or you know Ecolab and how is how has the journey been so far? Obviously, in in terms of you already just mentioned there, you know, the muscles of Ecolab and uh, hopefully allowing you to do things quicker and access to capital and and all that type of thing. How has it been for you in terms of the journey from, I suppose, a, a relatively you know small business that grew while you were there to obviously now being part of a much <laughs> a much bigger animal? It's very recent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so far, it's been a positive experience, uh, and I think Equilab really—they've been very clear that they are investing into this area. So I think that's great, um, but it's promising. I'm going to ask you about the kind of future trends in in a few moments. Before I go, that would I wanted to just get your—you know—you strike me as someone who is a scientist by heart, and obviously you've ended up in the corporate world now you know, of, of being part of a bigger, a bigger company. Are you still excited by the science and the innovations side of things today as you were 
30 years ago or, or are you are you a different person now no i i'd say uh, i'm still very much into to science i've always been a, been a, a bit of a reader so i even took you know i always enjoyed maybe not in high school but <laughs> once i kind of passed high school i always enjoyed education and i also we we've had a lot of training in the early days so we started a group just focusing on training and education of customers but i still take university courses even though i'm a bit older now uh, in different areas so so and do you think that's been you've obviously had a very successful career you know you just have to look at your linkedin profile and the roles that you've done in in the the prominence of your position today do you think that learning habit of you know reading doing university courses, continuing your education, would you say that's been fundamental to your career success? Not too fundamental is a strong word, but yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not like the knowledge, it's also the kind of curiosity to, mm-hmm. to, to pick up things and learn things. It's, no, it's an interesting, I suppose, one of my observations with, with people that I've had the pleasure of interviewing on the podcast is almost every single one of them, you know, and you're, you're in it, a new example as well of of always have some kind of learning habit and whether it's university courses or education and even CEOs that I've interviewed, they're always doing something to better themselves. It's a really common theme that we see. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. Obviously someone like yourself that comes from a science background, but continuing to invest in yourself is a, is a super example. I think for, for people listening that, you know, never, Never think you know everything and, <laughs> and continue to be curious and, and that type of thing. And um, if you, you know, Hans, if you could go back and give your 25-year-old self some advice, what, what would you say to them? I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> and what would, you, what would those magic words of wisdom be? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think to have an open mind is really to, to listen to different point of views um, and especially in these days I, I think with a with a kind of scientific angle on to think to to actually really don't believe everything <laughs> I guess or by far not everything it's a good point to be a bit skeptical I think a lot of innovation that's founded a lot of great companies comes from partly of serendipity but you really have to be there to be able to pick up the opportunity to have a, this open mind. So, so for example, I, I never had any career planning or anything like that. Uh, I do what I enjoy. Well, whatever you've done seems to have worked out pretty well to you <laughs> to this point. So uh, I think some terrific advice there for our, for our listeners. In the last few minutes, I wanted to you know spend a bit of time talking about I suppose future trends in in your area and what you expect to see in the market in the next few years. Obviously, you've talked about um, you know Mabs and, and innovation and um, you know obviously sustainability is in, in greener manufacturing are are very topical subjects at the minute. So you know and obviously you, know, can't, you can't miss the mRNA vaccines and you know more development in that area. So curious to get your take in terms of you know how big will the sustainability piece be for 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 pure light but also just you know moves into new markets and anything else you would share with um you know with with our 
listener says, you know, back to what you said there, you seem to have your ear to the ground in terms of customers. So seeing what shifts and trends are happening in the market might be uh, something that's in your mind that we would love to love to get out and share with others. Yeah, sure. So I think Equilab have a very aggressive policy. I mean, they're committed to, to a lot of goals in, in when it comes to reducing of carbon emissions to, you know, use renewable energy uh, and so on. And that's very much in line what we do at Purolite. I think when I started with Purolite, one of, one of the great benefits was that Purolite was really working in a low margin environment. That means you have to be very cost conscious. While in the life science, the price of, of you know these drugs are so high. So even if cost of manufacturing is, of course, important. It wasn't that important 10 years ago. Uh, now with biosimilars and, you know, drugs, making drugs available for, for on a more global level, it, it starts to matter. And, and I say that cost of goods and so on, it also goes together with, you know, resource utilization. So, for example, long ago, Pure Light started to change the technology of making beads to focusing on a technology called jetting. And I don't need to go into the technical details, but basically all resins for life science today, except pure lights are made by a kind of very old technology, more than 50 years old, where you do your beads in a reactor. And that process is not very efficient. It, the yields are much lower. While when we transfer and do this in a with the jetting technology, we get more or less 100% yield of a product. So we don't have any waste or very little waste wow. compared to the batching model. I think that's a good example. And we're gonna, we are in the process of transferring all our resins to made, be made by this new technology uh, that will, I saw some calculation and we think we can cut the, the, the basically the environmental footprint by, more than 80 percent in, in in a couple of years so, so i think that's one area and it will be more important i mean you you can just read the papers about the climate impact and a lot of our customers are getting committed to minimize say let's say environmental impact and they have different programs and that often also includes the raw material they use to make the biologics so it's everything kind of comes together that's really interesting. I was just making some notes around what you said around the kind of use of new technology and, and the impact from an environmental perspective, but also just increasing yield. I mean, that's, I suspect what we're going to see more and more of, of, of technology coming in to do those types of things, which isn't just about efficiency, but it's about reducing the carbon footprint as well, which is just probably a trend that we're all feeling at the minute. So final question, I suppose, and this one's a bit of a an unusual one from what I normally ask, but I think given your kind of lifelong long learning habit, are there any books or resources or courses or anything that you've done that have been uh, really instrumental in your career hands that you would would want to share with with the listener? <laughs> I can't say I have any. Well, I'm actually. Or at the start of the talk that 
Uppsala was a bit of the kind of hub of life, especially especially protein and separation sciences. So way, way back, I took a lot of courses and you learn everything practically, which has always been very helpful. Even now, I go back to really understand, to pick things apart, you know, complicating and really understand the principles of, of everything from separation and also hardware and so on. So that's been helpful. Otherwise, I don't know. I took a year off and just read philosophy. That's good. Uh, five years ago. I, I can really recommend that as well. Well, if you um, if you ask your boss, listener, to have a year off and you can blame hands for that question. But uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting point. You know, I mean, I, I personally spent um, every three years, I, I'd spend six to eight weeks off away from work and just with my family intend to travel it's not quite a year but i feel like that uh you know that reset as a as a busy professional is unbelievably valuable so it, it's interesting that you've you've done something similar because i think you know it's a bit like when you reset your phone and switch it back on and it tends to work. <laughs> Sometimes as a human, you probably need to do the same. So, um, but Hans, it, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you um, and, you know, get your career history, but share some of the challenges and some of the, uh, you know, things that you've gone through during kind of 35 years or so that you've been in industry it's uh so thank you very much for being a guest on on molecule to market well thank you for having me absolute pleasure hi again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to market pod.com and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You are listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.